Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On this week's programme, birthday celebrations in the Sikh community, fears about fake news and there's something about Mary. We'll hear how the Mother of Jesus is recognised by many of the world's religions. Well, the way in which faith and people of faith are viewed in an age of fake news and alternative facts was the focus of an event at Dublin's University Church on Thursday evening called Media and Faith in a Secular Age. Well, I took the opportunity to step out of the hustle and bustle of St. Stephen's Green and dropped into the church, built in 1856 in a basilica style, where I met with journalists Anne Thompson and Inés San Martín. Anne has been NBC Chief News Environmental Affairs correspondent for the past 12 years and reports on issues such as global warming and new technologies. Inez is the Rome Bureau Chief for Crooks, a news outlet focused on the Catholic Church. So we'll head towards the Lady Chapel where Anne and Inez are both waiting. Nice quiet corner here and Anne and Inez, welcome to Dublin and indeed to the programme. What was the focus of your presentation on Thursday? Well, I work for NBC News, which is one of the national networks in the United States, and I cover the Catholic Church. And we cover the Catholic Church because of its global influence. It is the only church that had, major church, that has this singular figurehead. And when Pope Francis was elected six years ago, suddenly, everybody got interested again in the Catholic Church. After Benedict resigned, the United States was fascinated. They'd never seen a pope resign. And then Francis was elected, and I remember what the first thing he did is he went and paid his hotel bill. And I looked at the picture, and I thought it had to be Photoshopped because there was no cardinal I knew who paid his hotel bill, let alone a bishop. And he's doing it. It's like, no, that's a real picture. And suddenly you knew everything was going to be different. And what's happened now in the United States is that um, we have been hit with another wave of abuse claims. The Pennsylvania grand jury report has really devastated American Catholics because once again, it brings up this issue of why did they hide this horrible crime? And then you have the issue of Cardinal McCarrick, former Cardinal McCarrick, and how he allegedly abused not just altar boys, but young priests and seminarians. And all that has worn away at the faith that American Catholics have in the church leadership, not just in the United States, but also in Rome. And so I tried to explain some of that And, of course, people, if they're attempting to make an argument, will tend to bring in a new technique, maybe it's not that new, which is the idea of fake news or alternative facts. How do you, as a journalist, weave your way through that? (laughs) I hate both terms, um, to be very honest with you. Facts are facts. Um, You, as Patrick Moynihan, who was a senator from New York, famously said, you're entitled to your own opinion. You are not entitled to your own facts. What has happened is that because of the explosion of the internet, people now can go and find facts or positions that they like that reinforce what they think, as opposed to looking at what's actually happened. And the other thing, I also cover the environment, and I will tell you that on that issue in particular, it will drive you crazy, because people will, 
it, they think their opinion is fact, and your opinion is not fact. Facts are facts. You know, the world is getting warmer. Growing zones are moving north. We're changing the chemistry of the ocean. Something is going on in the world, and something is going on with the climate. And you can trace it back to the Industrial Revolution. The rate of change hit. That's when the rate of change started. That's a fact. It's not an alternative fact. It's not fake news. It's a fact. And as when you were invited to speak at the event, what sprung to mind to you as would be your focus? Uh, my, my focus, I have a similar um, idea of and regarding the importance of the Catholic Church as a universal institution. I always perceived it as covering the White House. Um, it is as important because it is, first of all, it is an actual government. We tend to forget about it. But there is the fact um, that the Pope, as uh, a leader, head of state, does have a huge influence um, in the politics of the world that we sometimes don't get to perceive, but it's definitely there. I was reading a review uh, online during the week, and uh, the writer said that he was very disappointed that people were writing negative things about the church. Do you ever feel yourself coming under that kind of pressure to, you know, spin a better story? Um. I don't, I don't see it as a pressure. Um, and to be honest, a lot of the time I have to follow the news cycle. It's, there's so much going on all of the times, especially with Pope Francis when he opened his mouth and he gives us a headline most of the time. Um, it's very hard for me to go down to Timbuktu and see what his sister so-and-so doing down there. Um, however, um, the good news just pops up, whether you, you're looking for it or not. And I don't say it as a pressure, um, I said, well, first of all, as a personal need, and second, I said as part of my duty or my due diligence as a journalist. You know, part of journalism is to uncover the truth or to share the truth um, with your readers, and I can't just share a partial version of it. And it, that would be just covering the bad parts of it, and I do truckloads of that, but there's also the other side. You're very close to the communications systems that operate in the Vatican. Could they do a better job? Do they occasionally put their foot in it? Well, here's what I would tell you. Um, Especially my world is a 24-7 world. Um, We operate all the time. Um, We are going at a pace that I could not have imagined 10 years ago. The Vatican is catching up. It moves a little slower, I think, sometimes in the communications department than we would like, than certainly I would like. And classic example was when the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report came out. And, you know, we're, I'm firing off emails to, to the Vatican and calling people and not getting anything back. And people aren't waiting. They don't want to wait two weeks, a month for an answer. They want the answer now because that's what they're used to. That's the way, That's what the world expects today. And is a similar experience for you? Um, yes, and probably even more frustrating because Zan said she also covers the environment. I only cover the Catholic Church. And when it takes the Vatican a day, two days, three days to give me a response to something that I had to file for yesterday, I'm like, um, no, guys, let's talk about how, first of all, you need a bigger team. You can't just have two people running a press office for a country. Because we, you know, we agreed the Vatican is in fact a country, and it has 1.2 billion members. Um, so in, in that sense, it's definitely frustrating. But I also want to, you know, acknowledge the goodwill. I mean, the spoke the Pope's spokesperson today is a great person, and he has a team of five other people. But still, it's just 
is very small and sometimes you need an answer from a, a dicaster. You, you have to call a cardinal and you can't get a cardinal out of bed at 3 a.m. You just, you can't. I'm sorry. You've tried. You've tr yeah, I have actually. And I don't want to be the spokesperson who has to do it and say, your eminence, is, it, is this true? So, yeah. Finally, I'm not going to let the opportunity pass having two leading journalists with their fingers on the pulse to find out what's the next big story coming up. Uh, well, I can't really think beyond the fact that I'm going to be with the Pope in Thailand and Japan um, starting Tuesday. Um, so that's kind of the big story that's run out in my head. But being honest, um, it's going to be when the Vatican releases or when a journalist leaks the report on former cardinal, former priest Theodore McCarrick. That is definitely going to be generating a lot of shockwaves. What we've heard is that it's probably worse or harder to digest than anyone has anticipated so far. And that, Inez is absolutely right. That is the next big story, certainly for the American Catholic Church, is how in the world did Theodore McCarrick rise to be a prince of the church, even though um, he abused altar boys and then seminarians and young priests, and in particular with the seminarians and young priests, there were other priests who tried to alert the Vatican um, to that behavior, to those rumors. Why was that ignored? Was it money? Was there some kind of blackmail? What 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 was going on? And the answer is going to be heartbreaking. I mean, I interviewed Cardinal McCarrick. I can't tell you the number of times during the the sex abuse crisis that started in Boston, and he was put out, if you will, as the kinder, gentler, compassionate face of the Catholic Church in America. And then you find out this. It's just it's been devastating. And it will be devastating again, I fear, when the report comes out. Anne Thompson and Ines San Martin, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Staying in the city, last Monday evening, Dublin's Christchurch was transformed into a Sikh Gurdwara as the Sikh community in Dublin, along with the Dublin Interfaith community, held prayers and a service to celebrate the 550th birth anniversary of the founder of the Sikh religion, Guru Nanak. The event marks the first Sikh celebration ever to be held at Christchurch, perhaps poignant in a week that saw the historic opening of the Kartapur Corridor, a crossing between India and Pakistan which now allows Indian pilgrims access, without a travel visa, to one of Sikhism's holiest shrines. The shrine is said to be where Guru Nanak spent the final 18 years of his life. Well, our reporter Noel Sweeney was in Christchurch Cathedral for the Leap of Faith. Satnam Kartapuruk, Nirbhau, Nirvair, Akal Murat, Ajoni Sevang, Gurprasad, which means God is one and there's oneness with all. This is Dr. Jasper Singh Puri, a senior leader within Ireland's Sikh community. I'm learning a great deal about Sikhism as we walk and talk around Dublin's Christchurch Cathedral. Everybody is equal, including the woman. Why call the woman inferior? Because he has given birth to the king and the saint and to you. How can she be inferior? She is above you because she has given you the birth. Your first teacher after God is your mother. The second is the father. And the third is your teacher who brings you from ignorance to the knowledge, knowledge to the wisdom. It is the wisdom which is important. When you are at the knowledge, you could have an academic knowledge, but wisdom is more important. Six are egalitarian society. We accept the will of the God, service of the mankind, and we do not smoke, we do not 
have tobacco, no drink, one man, one wife, like adultery is a transgression in sick. And we say one man has to have only one marriage, it's for life, you, know, you cannot do. We have got no equivalent word of a divorce in my language. We do not cut over hairs, we say, if the God wanted to give us a small hairs, he would have done it because he's omnipotent. He has given me small eyebrows, small eyelashes. Why hair are only on the head, long hairs, not the rest of the part of the body? Rest of the part is density different. We say, because this is the storehouse of knowledge and spirituality, so these are your spiritual connections to the God. Just a couple of moments ago, we heard the, the bells of Christchurch ring out there. What does it feel like for you, for a, a Christian building like this, to, to, to allow uh, a Sikh celebration it, it, like it, this it for you? There. It is there because there's a similarity here. The Christians all over, whether they're Catholics or Protestants, they sing that the, Jesus is the light of the life. We call it, Mitti Tund Jag Chanan Hoa, Tare Chupe Andher Puloa which means when there was a mist and the fog and the darkness, Guru Nanak came here and the darkness went away and he brought the light. We are in the same way. You try to find the differences, there's a fight. When you talk of the commonalities and cohesion, that is where you join together. How is a Sikh religion now becoming integrated into Irish society and so you know kids were born here how, how, how are they expressing their Sikhism? You see look up a tree the root is the most important I'll call the whole word or the concept of the God is a tree because every tree stem and the branches and the leaf they are connected to their roots we are connected to our roots and the roots are the gods How do you feel about the the turban now being accepted into the, the Garda Shikana uh, uniform? Yes. The, the turban was started in 2007. First they denied. A Sikh called Ravinder Singh was uh, going for uh, training. He had three modules but he was refused and the turban issue came. Since then we have been negotiating one. Then the Equality Commission took the case but on technical grounds they lost the case. But now the Garda uh, Commissioner Recently, we have been trying, I have been trying with them through the Dublin City Interfaith Forum and others. We have been trying with the, with the guards and I have been approaching them for the last 12 years. And finally this year, Garda Commissioner Drew Harris, he agreed and he allowed. With people from array of faiths gathering to celebrate this anniversary, I met with Adrian Christie, who coordinates the Dublin Interfaith Forum a network of religious leaders from seven of the world's major religions. The Sikh community are, are using Christchurch Cathedral to uh, celebrate the anniversary of their first uh, guru, their founder. The Sikh community is not the largest uh, um, um, community, but uh, it certainly is one of the very active and very involved in, in the social life. For the last um, uh, five, six years, um, I've been fortunate to coordinate the Dublin City Interfaith Forum, which is a network of religious leaders from, um, I guess, seven major world religions um, and multiple denominations. Now we have members from the Baha'i community, Buddhist community, 
quite a number of uh, Christian denominations, um, different uh, mosques around the city, two different Jewish congregations, uh, the Hindu community. Mm. Um, and, and many of those members here tonight. And quite a few of our members are here to support um, and celebrate together with the um, Sikh community. One of the many members of the Sikh community attending on the night, Raminder Kaur. And uh, I'm uh, very glad and obliged to get the chance to serve to my community. I'm, I just congratulate everybody that uh, we are celebrating the 550th Gurpurv of Guru Nanak Sahib, who was the founder of the Sikh religion. And, of course, Christchurch transformed beautifully tonight into, yes. into a Sikh Gurdwara. I will offer my thanks to Christchurch. They organized beautifully and uh, gave us a chance to celebrate with different communities our very auspicious day and uh, I'm very happy about it and they have just made so lovely arrangements for us and they accommodated us so well and we are really thankful for that. And sharing a perspective on the similarities between Sikhism and Christianity, the Dean of Christchurch Cathedral, Dermot Dunn. It's uh, making a statement of how our religions converge and how we need to be tolerant of each other's beliefs. And if you look at the basic tenets of Sikhism, it's very similar to Christian faith, about belief in the one God, about the core of the faith being in service of humanity, and especially of people who are poor or less well-off. So it's about right living and about honoring God, which is very Christian in itself as well. So it's great to be able to accommodate um, the Sikh community tonight in Christchurch. A historical evening? A very historical evening. This is the first time that um, the Holy Book from, uh, from the Sikh religion is coming into a Christian church and, uh, and, and into the Christchurch Cathedral itself. This, uh, nothing like this happened before in Christchurch, so it is uh, making uh, a mark on the history of, of, of Christchurch. Noel Sweeney coming to us from Dublin's Christchurch Cathedral and the live music you heard in that report was performed by the Dublin Gurdwara Choir who chanted verses from the Sikh scriptures. Finally this evening, has there been a shift in emphasis over the past few generations in the way Catholics regard Our Lady? My next guest is a Jesuit priest, Dean of the Faculty of Philosophy at the Pontifical University in Maynooth and a prolific author. His latest book, Mary in Different Traditions, is a sequel to his acclaimed Smile of Joy, Mary of Nazareth. Reverend Professor Thomas Casey, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Tom, can I begin with an observation that comes from the book that I found intriguing, which is that Mary is referred to more often in the Quran than she is in the New Testament. Yes, she's about over 30 times she appears in the Quran and she has a whole chapter dedicated to her, chapter 19, the Surah of Maryam, the, the chapter of Mary. So uh, it's extraordinary, really. Uh, people don't realise that, that she's so highly valued and treasured in Islam. And, uh, well, actually, the woman who is treasured above all other women in the Quran. So it's ex- quite extraordinary. Yeah. Now, that very point leads us to discuss what we want to talk about this evening, which is how Mary is perceived across different faiths and different cultures. And I suppose anybody who was brought up in the Irish Catholic tradition might believe that she was the sole preserve of the Catholic faith. Yes. And what people forget is that she was Jewish. So she was brought up Jewish rather than Catholic. And, you know, 
the f most famous Jewish person in Ireland is actually a Jewish person who never existed in a sense, Leopold Bloom in James Joyce's Ulysses. And I think in some ways too that Mary is almost like a Jewish person who never existed as a Jewish person. But uh, you can see in the Bible that she, she had Jesus circumcised eight days after he was born. She brought him to the temple for the presentation as Jewish law dictated. And then when they came back from Egypt, settled in Nazareth, even though it was a three-day journey from Jerusalem, every year she came with Joseph to for Passover with the child Jesus. And the, the mother didn't have to come. She was excused by the law. But you can see how much it meant to Mary that she made sure she came with Joseph and Jesus each year. So there's a, there's a huge um, Jewish dimension that we've kind of neglected or somehow we've got this amnesia about it. What's the provenance of the information that we have about Mary? Well, the information we have as Christians all comes from uh, the Gospels, really. But then when you look at uh, the Jewish faith and Jewish tradition, you find there's a whole another seam or level of information that's more indirect about Mary in the Old Testament. So it's a bit like, you know, when you, when you read about Mary in the New Testament, it's like hearing um, a song in mono sound. But if you can get the perspective of the Old Testament, you got a stereo effect. So you got um, a new layer of richness about Mary, a new wavelength of wonder, and um, it tells you a lot more about her. What's your interest in the in the story of Mary? How did you come to study it in such detail? Well, uh, I, I worked um, with Jewish people and I got interested in Jesus as Jewish and Mary as Jewish. And then I started exploring Mary in the Gospels. And then I began to discover, well, other faiths have a lot to say about Mary. Uh, Judaism, Islam, uh, Greek and Russian Orthodox, um, the Protestant traditions and so on. So I just felt, you know, we Catholics are um, probably overly familiar with Mary. Uh, you know, you go through a garden, you pass by nine flowers and then you come to a tenth flower and you suddenly notice it. Maybe it's it's almost as if the flower reaches out to you and it has a certain presence. But I think uh, when you see Mary in terms of your own tradition all the time, you kind of you can become jaded by the familiarity. But when you see her from another perspective, as another person looks at her, you can be awakened into wonder. And that's that's a great thing. But Mary's there in, in song and tradition and everything else, but she's also hugely represented, certainly in, in my memory, of of being unhappy, of, of carrying a great sorrow. Is there any evidence of her ever being a happy woman? Yes, well, um, it's that's very important what you say because uh, I I wrote a book about Mary and looking at Mary in Scripture, and I wanted to get and I called it Smile of Joy because I wanted to focus on her joyful side, and I tried to find an image of Mary looking happy, and I scoured through the internet. I'd say fifty hours, sixty hours, seventy hours. And I couldn't find anything except for an occasional tacky, cheesy image. And eventually I found a statue, a polychrome alabaster statue from the city of Toledo in Spain, from their Gothic cathedral. And it's called the Virgen Blanca. And it's a beaming Our Lady, more than life-size. And Jesus is stroking her chin, and that's why she's beaming in response. And I love that uh, because of the joy, but also because in Toledo... For a certain period of time, 
Christians, Jews, and Muslims coexisted peacefully together. And so if you walk down the windy streets of Toledo today, you'll still see uh, remains of these mosques and synagogues from medieval times. And I like to think that Mary, who is somebody who's Jewish and who's also found in the Bible and in the Quran, so she's in the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions, is someone perhaps who can be a bridge builder between our different faiths. Would it be possible to tell the story of Christianity without having a Mary? Well, I guess it'd be possible, but it'd be, it would be impoverished as well. Like she adds, uh, there's a lovely line from George Bernanos, the, the French novelist. He says, Mary, although she's our mother in terms of grace, he said, she's actually our younger sister. He says, because she's younger than sin. She's so innocent that she's got this youthfulness that we don't have. And I think it's a lovely image that that she's actually younger than us rather than older than us. She's our younger sister as much as she's our mother. And there's something, you know, lovely about that, that this is a woman who lived wide with wide-eyed wonder, who lived, you know, in a stream of love and open. She she gave her yes in response to God's huge invitation to her. It's interesting to see, and we've, we've heard it discussed on this programme uh, before, which is the role that, that Bridget has taken on and in many cases has become very much associated with feminism in the church or, 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 or strength in the church. Um, efforts to do the same with Mary don't seem to follow through. Um, well, if you look, say, one of, the, one of the figures who's talked about Mary's power would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer the Lutheran theologian who's so respected, not just because um, of his theology, but more because he took a stand. Um, He died for his beliefs, uh, taking a stand against the Nazis, and he was hung in Flossenburg concentration camp. But he says that, you know, he he gave a rousing sermon on Mary's uh, hymn of praise, the Magnificat, in London, actually, in 1933. And he said basically said that we've domesticated the wildness of the Magnificat and that we've made it so sweet and sugary that we've totally eviscerated it of its kind of somewhat acerbic quality because it talks about throwing, casting on the mighty from their thrones, raising up the lowly. It talks about a kind of revolution, about a change in society and in the world. She doesn't say how it will happen or when it will happen, but she says that it will occur. Uh, God will cast down the mighty from their thrones. He'll raise up the lowly. He'll fill the starving with good things. He'll send the rich away empty. And that's a very strong Mary, a passionate Mary, a Mary who is um, in some way doesn't brook compromises. And maybe it's a Mary we need to rediscover. The book is called Mary in Different Traditions. The author, Father Thomas Casey, our guest on the programme, and it's a messenger publication. Father Thomas, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. Join us next week at the same time. From our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, and from me, Michael Cummins. good night.